Well, this is a sermon in our series from 1 Corinthians, uh, but having completed uh, 1 Corinthians 11 to 14, in which uh, Paul is talking about the worship in the church and covers uh, the spiritual gifts in that church, uh, it seemed a good idea maybe to have a bit of a mop-up sermon about the spiritual gifts to try to, try to tie up a few loose ends, but also uh, to get a fresh view of what those gifts are. And I think we can do that this morning. If you want to follow along uh, with your sermon outline, you'll see this theme. One manifestation of God's grace arrives in the grace gifts from the Spirit, which build up the church. We should desire them and be thankful for them as we serve one another in love and worship God in peace. The focus is on God's grace. God is a gracious God. And he manifests his grace to us in many ways. Before we are even saved, God's grace attends us to carry us to and prepare for our conversion. We can call this preparatory grace. God is gracious to bring us to believe in Jesus, to lead us to repentance, and to justify us by faith in the sin-atoning death and life-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we call this saving grace. God is gracious in our progressing in sanctification to make us more like Christ during our life here on earth. And Christ has promised to preserve us to the end while that process is taking place and to present us blameless before his throne. And for that, we need his sustaining grace. And God is gracious to his church, his gathered people, in many ways. The Holy Spirit manifests himself in the church in what the Apostle Paul calls charismata, or grace gifts. These particular manifestations of God's grace arrive in the members of the church in their service to the church. Sacrificial service that builds up the church body. And I think we should think of this as serving grace. God gives us serving grace. So at root, our response to the grace gifts should be thankfulness. Thank you, God, for your grace. The Apostle Paul tells us to desire them in the church for the building up of the church. We're not the initiators of God's grace. We are but the humble and happy receivers of God's grace. So we should be thankful for the grace gifts and worship God in peace. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound lovely? Sounds simple enough. But the Corinthian church just can't do it. They wrote to Paul about it, asking him questions about what they called spiritual gifts, and particularly the spiritual gifts in their gathered worship, which was marked by chaos and confusion, selfish and unloving use of the gifts, and division which caused Paul to write about the gifts in the way that he did to the Corinthian church. Informing them, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. Informing them about the grace gifts, correcting their misuse of the grace gifts, and instructing them in the unity of the body and the bond of peace in their worship of the God of peace. Which raises the question, does Paul say anything about the grace gifts 
to any of the other churches? Are there, are there any other examples, or is it only the Corinthians example that we have to look at? Well, in fact, he does. Maybe, maybe before we move on from chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, we would be wise to see what Paul says to the other churches of the saints about the grace gifts. Yes, yes, let's do that this morning. Let's briefly survey the other places in the New Testament where the Spirit-given grace gifts are addressed. That seems wise and helpful. And the first place we would go is to Romans chapter 12, where the grace gifts are talked about in verses 6 to 8. But let's get, uh, let's get some context by reading, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12 in Romans. I think you'll be a little surprised at how much the things that Paul talks about before, after, and during the grace gifts to other churches are things that he talked about to the, current ch- to the church in Corinth. But it sounds different. Beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may be discerned what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice Paul says, present your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular, worshiping God by being holy and serving one another. It's a call to the church. Look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Well, that sounds familiar. Paul has the grace gift of prophecy uh, to tell the Romans something God has to say to him. He says, don't be puffed up. That would be Corinthian language applied here because it's not about you, it's about the body. This is Paul teaching the Romans the same thing he teaches the Corinthians and all the churches of the saints that he keeps referring to in 1 Corinthians. You are one body, the body of Christ. You are many different members who function in many different ways. But you remain one body, and therefore members of one another. Carry on from verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You each have grace gifts, Paul says, so use them. Use them. So God's grace to the church is present in the individual members of one another. The Spirit is not magic dust sprinkled on top of the church. He is himself the third person of the Trinity who chooses to manifest himself as grace in the living service of the members of the body so the body is built up in love. 
And Paul tells the church in Rome that the Spirit does so in these ways. The Spirit will manifest himself in grace to the church through prophecy according to the faith of the prophet. The Spirit will manifest himself in grace to the church through the one who teaches in his teaching. The Spirit will manifest himself in grace to the church through the one who exhorts in his exhortation. The Spirit will manifest himself in grace to the church through the one who gives in his generosity. The Spirit will manifest himself in grace to the church through the one who leads, what we would say, elders, in their zeal. And the Spirit will manifest himself in grace to the church through the one who does acts of mercy in his cheerfulness. Now, we read that, and this is a far less mystical understanding of the spiritual gifts than many of us have been led to believe. This kind of sounds like normal church stuff. In fact, it's all pretty practical, as most things that build up the church are. What are these gifts given by the Spirit? How does he manifest himself in gifts, service and activity, and the members, one of another, to build up the body? How does he do that? Well, he gives faith for prophets to believe what God has revealed to them, so that a prophet's prophecy is in accordance with his or her faith. He gives grace so that our serving serves and our teaching teaches and our exhorting exhorts so that we serve in needful ways. We teach truthful things. Our exhortation reaches those ears that need exhorting. He gives generosity to givers. He gives courage to leaders. And he puts a smile on the face of those who show mercy so that they're protected from bitterness and skepticism. The Roman church had its own struggle to get along as one body. Their struggle was a Jew-Gentile assimilation, a coming together of the Jews and the Gentiles who were very different from one another in the one body of Christ. And the Father was gracious to provide his power through grace, manifested by the Spirit in the body of Christ, the church in Rome. So these grace gifts are important. These grace gifts are significant. And they're to be desired in the churches. We should want the grace of God. Even so, the grace gifts were not the way. Not for the Corinthian church and not for the Roman church. Pick up in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's, that's just another way of Paul saying what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That the still more excellent way, even than the gifts, is love. God's gift of grace to his children, the body of Christ, however the Spirit himself wills to manifest it, builds up the body in love. Isn't this informing? Isn't it helpful to see this alternative view of the grace gifts the Spirit gives in manifesting himself in the serving and acting of the many members of the church so that all are built up in love? Without having to wade through the mess of the Corinthians. 
It sounds very different. And without having to wade through the mess of the modern day misunderstanding and practice of so-called spiritual gifts. Apparently, the church in Rome's worship gathering, unlike the Corinthians' worship gathering, was, was decent and orderly. Paul doesn't address all of that mess. They seem to understand Christ is the head of all in the church. They recognize the sacrifice in the Lord's Supper. They served one another rather than themselves. Not perfectly, but not like the Corinthians didn't. They were learning and growing and applying the grace gifts so that the love of Christ for Jew and Gentile was actively bringing about unity and the bond of peace in the church. I mean, that's just a pretty refreshing treatment of the grace gifts, isn't it? Pretty refreshing after our sermons in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. There's another place we can look. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. If you want to turn there with me. We'll get a little perspective by enlarging that text a little bit, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Since therefore Christ surrendered in the flesh, or excuse me, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even, though, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the people, way people are, they uh, might live in the spirit the way God does. So Peter, Peter kicks off this, ramping up to the spiritual gifts by saying that the saving grace of God, because of that in your life, you no longer serve yourself by walking according to the flesh. Now you serve God by walking according to the spirit. Peter's writing to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And he wants to encourage them not to give up, but to keep being the church. That's the context. Pick up in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, don't be surprised, the, the end of all things is always at hand, right? Where Jesus can come at any time, and he says to these people who are, who are being persecuted, all the more reason, all the more reason to live self-controlled lives. All the more reason to be sober-minded. Did you catch that? The Christian life requires the mind to be engaged, especially in prayer, especially when you're addressing God. This is no time for mindless prayer. These, there's no room for mindless, unfruitful praying in your life. And before he gets to the grace gifts, Peter, just like Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, lays the greater foundation of love. The apostles are in concert with one another on the more excellent way of love because that's what Jesus told them. Keep loving one another earnestly. As one was persecuted, 
and needed the hospitality of another, hospitality without grumbling was a tangible act in love. Do you see that picture? So pick up in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How are these persecuted Christians to keep loving one another in such difficult circumstances? I mean, it's hard enough to get by yourself when you're being persecuted. How do they love one another and help one another? Well, the Spirit has manifested himself in grace gifts to that body. Be good stewards of the varied grace of God for the church. And what does that look like? Paul says, the one who speaks should speak the oracles of God. This is the grace gift of teaching to teachers in the church. The oracles of God are the words of God. The words of God in the Old Testament scripture, spoken words of Christ, and in the apostles' teaching. Whoever serves will have the grace gift of God's supplied strength to serve. Now notice that these are not, these are not just two gifts. There are two categories of gifts. The teaching gifts or speaking gifts, and the serving gifts. Be good stewards of your speaking gifts and your serving gifts, he says. For what purpose, dear persecuted ones, should be you could be good stewards of these? Well, for the very reason that you're being persecuted. That in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Then, Peter just breaks out into doxology right there in the letter. Not in correction and instruction because they're doing it wrong, but in encouragement to keep on doing it right. For Christ's glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Man, that's the kind of church we all want to be, isn't it? The one that Peter's writing to? A gospel-preaching church? You know, if, if you're looking for a church, that's the kind of church you want to go to, the church that Peter's preaching to. Because they're willing to sacrifice to serve Christ where they are. They're willing to stand firm in the truth and be persecuted for the glory of God. As Christ was persecuted, even unto death, for their salvation. You, you want to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And then you want to stand for him, for his glory. That sounds like a great church. You know, when Paul is done informing and correcting and instructing the Corinthians, he says, the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. That's how serious, that's a pulpit pounding, I'm serious. This is the word of the Lord. Follow my instructions. Follow my correction to the Corinthian church. Because they were all wrapped up in themselves. They were doing it wrong. They're not the example for us. Paul tells them several times that they need to come in line with all the churches of all the saints who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
because they are walking in the Spirit, in love for one another, as good stewards of God's grace and for the glory of Christ. You see, the Corinthians are the outliers. It's a little funny when we get to, and we will, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 12. Paul writes, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you, the church in Corinth, with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. I, I think if, if the Apostle Paul strongly urged anyone to do anything, they would, they would accommodate him. I wonder why Apollos didn't want to go to the church in Corinth. I don't know, but quite frankly, I wouldn't want to go to the church in Corinth either. I'd rather go to the church that Peter's writing to. Or, or I'd rather go to the church in Ephesus. We want to look at Ephesus chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, and, and we'll, we'll pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4 in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Again, just to get some context, because it's amazing to me how these gift passages are always surrounded by the very same things that Paul's trying to correct the Corinthian church to do. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had descended to the lower regions of the earth? He who ascended is the one who also ascended, or descended, is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fulfill all in all. So what God, or, or, or I guess the question would be, what has God given to the church? Grace. Christ has given grace gifts to his body, the church. Now, this isn't saving grace, remember. This is serving grace. Each of us has received serving grace according to Christ's gift. Jesus liberated captives in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what that means. He descended from heaven to the earth. And in his death, burial, and resurrection, he later ascended to heaven. Each of us have received this. And in his capacity as our ascended king, he has authority to celebrate his victory by blessing his loyal subjects with gifts. It's what victorious kings did, and Jesus does it too. And what gifts has Jesus given to his church? Down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. First, Christ gave apostles and New Testament prophets, and they laid the foundation of the church. 
Paul's repeating what he said earlier. We didn't read it yet. We'll read it now. What he said earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 to 21. For through him, that is Christ, we both have, that is Jew and Gentile, access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grown into a holy temple in the Lord. Now Paul here uses the metaphor of a building or temple rather than a body, but it's the same picture. The church is the temple of God. Jesus is the cornerstone. And the apostles and the prophets have laid the foundation of the church. They built it upon Christ, and they gave us the Bible. They're teaching. But now the apostles and prophets are gone. Those gifts have ceased. But the gifts of evangelists, shepherds, and teachers remain. These gifts to the church may be singular or they may be often overlapping. We certainly hope they're overlapping. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So Timothy was the gift of a pastor, shepherd, and evangelist to the church in Ephesus. Paul gives Titus this job description for elders in the church in Crete. In Titus chapter 1, he says of an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So elders are gifts to the church to teach and exhort the gospel and to refute any and all false teachings and contradictions to the gospel. So they're on offense and defense as far as the gospel word goes. And what is this purpose? What, what, for what purpose is all of this happening? For the building up of the body of Christ. Which is what all the grace do, griffs do, right? They build up the body of Christ to become the fullness of Christ, Paul writes. Which has two broad benefits. One is negatively stated, one is positively stated. Beginning in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. First, so that the body would no longer be immature, children, but mature. They'd put away childish things. Not fooled by false gospels. Not sucked in by human standards of worship experiences. Not pulled off course from gospel ministry to do something else. Rather, so that we would all join together like the parts of a body function properly as a body that builds itself up in love. The purpose of the grace gifts is for us to love one another. And in so doing, build a church that is itself a witness to the love of Christ. 
to be His body here on earth. Look, grace gifts are great, but the way is love. Paul tells all of the churches, of all of the saints, who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the way is love, and that grace gifts are something wonderful that just happens along the way. I think those contrasts to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 are just so helpful. Here are the churches that need God's grace, but they don't have the problems the Corinthian church had. And so we see Paul writing in a different way. We see Peter writing in a different way than when we read Paul writing to the Corinthians the way he does because they've asked him questions and he's answering their questions and he's addressing their problems and it's a matter of correction and instruction and exhortation that we don't find in these other ways. I want to, however clumsily this may be, I want to wrap up uh, the grace gifts. I want to pull together a few things, some questions that you have, try to answer them. You know, there are, there are two basic camps related to the miraculous gifts and the sign gifts. Those are the, the supernatural ones. Uh, one camp believes that the sign gifts uh, continue today. And so they're the continuationist camp. Others, like myself, believe that the sign gifts ceased after the time of the apostles. And so, so they're the cessationist camp, the gift, gift ceased camp. And you may be wondering which, which camp you agree with. Well, let me start with some things that we've been studying. Let me start with the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is direct revelation from God to a man or woman, which they then speak to the church. This has been our definition all the way through. It's the word of God. It's authoritative in the New Testament prophets, just as it was in the Old Testament prophets. It was operative in the New Testament prophets and the apostles during the foundation of the New Testament church. God used the apostles and prophets, to establish his church in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and beyond. And in Ephesians 2, we read that the church was founded on the apostles and the prophets. Once that fledgling church was established, once that foundational work was done, the gift of apostles and prophets in the church ceased. Once the church received their teaching and scripturated our Bibles, prophecy ceased. This is the complete word of God for us. Once the church received their teaching and scripturated, that prophecy ceased. We now hold in our hands the 27 books of the New Testament that definitively interpret the 39 books of the Old Testament. And that is the word of God for us. It's been inscripturated. It's been written down. And the church is devoted to the apostles' teaching. Any continued revelation you see, that was authoritative would challenge God's own scripture. God hasn't set things up that way. He's given us his word that we might have it. The reality about the gift of prophecy is that even most, like, and I mean by far, most continuationists who think the gift continues believe that the gift of the apostles did cease. There may be some here or there, but the vast majority of those who are continuationists believe that the, the gift of the apostles ceased. 
And most continuationists do not believe that modern-day so-called prophecy supersedes canon. They're not arguing that. They're not arguing that when they have a word of prophecy in their church service that, that somehow it, it contradicts this or it applies to everybody worldwide. They, they're not doing that. That's, that would be very rare to find somebody who claims that. Most describe their prophecy with the word impression. That's, that's the most common word used today among uh, uh, continuationist churches. Uh, that they, God's given them a little, little nudge to speak a word of Scripture, probably, to someone else in the church for, for upbuilding or encouragement or consolation. You take those words right out of 1 Corinthians 14. That's what, that's what most think that it is anyway. So in the main, what continuationists call the modern-day gift of prophecy is not the biblical gift of prophecy. It's something different. The burden on them is, to, is on them to explain their position. I can't do that for them. The gift of tongues is a little more tangled. The gift of tongues is the manifestation of the Spirit by which one speaks in a human language which they do not know to someone who does know that language. This is what happened at Pentecost. When the Galileans were speaking the gospel in Greek, but Parthians, Medes, and Elamites heard them in their own language. The purpose of this gift was a sign. It's a miraculous sign gift that according to the Old Testament, the Spirit had come. Just as Jesus said it would. He would return. He would pour it out. If you hear a person speaking to you, think about this, because it's pretty, pretty fantastic. If you hear a person speaking to you in your language, and you know that they do not know how to speak your language, then the question is, who is speaking to you? Do you see? The Spirit is speaking to you. That's what Peter stands up at Pentecost and explains to the crowd in Jerusalem. And 3,000 believed that day. That's the gift of tongues. God poured out his spirit to anoint his son's church. That was the inauguration of the new covenant and of the church. And that gift operated during the time of the apostles as that sign. But it has ceased. Spirit-filled believers are now the sign of the Spirit's presence in the church. You get me? You, Spirit-filled one, you're the sign that the Spirit's in the church. The gift of tongues, which is speaking in human languages every time we read it in the Bible, has ceased. I was thinking of a a missionary with Wycliffe uh, that we supported when she was in the field for years. And I'm imagining all of the Wycliffe translators who just prayed for the gift of tongues. Oh Lord, I, you know, we could speed these things up. If we wanted some Bibles in all of these unknown languages that we're still trying to translate and write, boy, it sure would help out if that would happen. But, but that gift has ceased. Our labor is what we're to do now. What cessationists claim to be the gift of tongues today is described as ecstatic utterance in public or perhaps a personal prayer language 
when exercised in private. Neither is intelligible. Neither engages the mind because it's not intelligible. And neither builds up the church. Many claim that they're not in control of their speech when engaged in this. Many claim that they have no clear understanding of what they're saying when engaged in this. And yet they claim to be slain in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by this activity. But this is clearly not the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always brings clarity, not confusion. The Holy Spirit always brings self-control, not self-abandonment. The Holy Spirit always brings gospel proclamation. That's how Paul began informing the church in Corinth about the gifts. He said, in the Holy Spirit, we all say, Jesus is Lord. Many of us have friends or family in charismatic churches who believe the gospel and who love Jesus. But here, I believe they're wrong. Their modern-day so-called gift of tongues is not the biblical gift of tongues. Now, we can correct their misunderstanding of the gifts and their practice of them in the gathered worship service from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, or excuse me, chapters 11 to 14, if we want to take the broader look, if they would listen. But we would have to go to other places in Scripture to refute their practice. Like 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Or maybe, maybe Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, which we already read, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves of every wind of doctrine, by every human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. My goal this morning is not to persuade continuationists of my position. The burden of proof is on them. My goal is to protect this church from false doctrine and false practice. It's your souls that I give an account for. My goal is for us to be rightly informed about the grace gifts so that we move on from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 not copying the same errors of the Corinthians but following the instructions of the Apostle Paul. I believe that the gifts of prophecy and tongues as well as the miraculous sign gifts like healing, like miracles, have ceased. That is not to say, beloved, that God does not perform miracles today. He can, and he does. But those are certainly the exception rather than the rule. We see in Scripture and in the church that his purpose in the sign gifts, attesting to the words spoken by his apostles and prophets, has ceased. Job done. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received as just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Listen to what he says next. It was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to by those who heard it. That's the New Testament writers, the apostles and the prophets. While God 
also bore witness or attested to their teaching by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The purpose of God's grace and the miraculous gifts distributed to the church by the Spirit according to his will was to attest to the truth and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was proclaimed by the apostles and the prophets. He accomplished that in that time period. So we have no warrant to expect those miraculous sign gifts to continue. They've ceased. That was God's program for then. His program now is for you and me, his saved people, his faithful servants, to proclaim his gospel to the lost. And there's an attesting miracle to the gospel that we proclaim. Do you know what it is? It is your spirit-filled transformed life. Your transformed life is the attesting miracle to the gospel that you proclaim. That's God's program now. And that transformation is evident by God's love. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another and they will know you are mine if you have love for one another. So how are we to think about the spiritual gifts. You know, the ones that continue. Well, first, we should recognize that there are two categories of grace gifts that continue to operate in the church today. Uh, we, we can call them what Peter called them. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. Speaking gifts may be teaching, preaching, evangelism. Uh, serving gifts may be helps or administration or hospitality. They're, they're, they're really, there's really an endless number of serving gifts that, that the Spirit may manifest himself in to supercharge the church by God's grace in your serving, such that it builds up. As a body, we should welcome and be thankful for them all. Regardless of which gifts we individually receive, and we should, as a body, desire the teaching gifts to be abundant in the church because we know that the word of God builds up the people of God. Second, it has been my goal, I told you, uh, Several sermons ago, it's been my goal to demystify these grace gifts. That is to, to clear away the clutter of modern day so-called spiritual gifts. And also to reduce the modern hype aimed at spiritual gifts. That is to, to push to aside the, the distraction that much of the modern day evangelical church uses in the form of I don't know, spiritual gift surveys and, and things to try to get you to serve in the church. They're tools that people are using. And I think they're misusing this in many ways. I wanted to demystify the grace gifts and reduce the modern hype aimed at those gifts. Both are helpful to the church. The Corinthians, in their culture, understood community. They understood communalism. But they really wanted individualism right? Look at me. I'm more spiritual. Look at me. He's, he's my teacher, not him. 
Look at me, I, I, I have this gift, not that gift. They had communalism. They wanted individualism. We're, we're in the opposite way. We in our culture recognize our individualism. It's all about me. It's all about you. It's never about us. What we need to desire is communalism. What we need to desire is to not think of ourselves as a foot. It's not part of the body. Not to think of ourselves as an eye that doesn't have a body, but that we're the body. That's what we need. We need to understand and live as the church of God and as the joined together members of it. We must desire and work for the unity of the one body and the bond of peace. We have to labor to do that. We have to rewire our thinking to do that. And that's what Paul's been doing. You're a body, you're a body, you're a body. Yes, you're all parts, wonderful parts, beautiful parts. But you're one body, and you function as one body. And when you do that, you build yourself up in love, like a body that's exercising gets built up. When a body loves, its love gets built up. And that's what Paul would have us to be. And the grace gifts help us to do that. It is not the grace of God for the individual. It is the grace of God through the individual for the body. That's how we need to think. So the Holy Spirit, we know this, manifests himself as he wills. And that looks like grace in our speaking and in our serving that builds up the church. Those grace as our gifts. Here's how I think, here's how I think we should think about the grace gifts. I think, I think this is the distinction. It is not that the Spirit has given me this gift for me to serve the church with. Rather, it is that the Spirit has chosen to manifest God's grace in my serving the church in that way. It's about him. I'm not the initiator of grace. God's the initiator of grace. I'm but the happy receiver. I'm glad that it works. I'm glad that it makes us love. I'm glad that it builds us up. But it's about God. If you want to find out what your spiritual gift is, what do you do? You serve. And you and those around you will observe how the Spirit manifests himself in grace gifts through your service. And we'll be thankful. And we'll be built up. And we'll serve some more. Is there an equipping aspect to the gifts? Yes. But we don't seem to handle that well. It just seems like whenever somebody says, God's given you a spiritual gift, we hear God's given me a spiritual power for me to use. That's why I would phrase it differently. At least the Corinthians didn't handle it well. And we can sort of see ourselves in there. What's far more significant and consequential is to see the gifts as the more amazing grace of God to his people, to view the results, to be grateful, to continue to serve, to continue to receive his grace. I think it's far more helpful to dwell on the results side of God's grace rather than on the equipping side. I just think we do better that way. I think in this way we're more thankful. 
we're more humble and we're becoming more Christ-like. Now, that may be a new thought to you. And you may still be leaning on the equipping side of the gifts, and that's okay. That's okay. But you must agree with the Apostle Paul in terms of our worship. That true spirit-filled worship, that true grace-filled worship is intelligible. It's understandable. That it engages the mind because it is understandable. Because it engages our mind, everything goes through the mind to the heart. It builds us up. It must be understandable. And then we do everything decently in order together. There's no room for contention, Paul said to the Corinthians. There's no room for that. That's a, look, at, look at the order of worship this morning. There's no, uh, here's, here's a time we're going we're gonna to spend in contention with one another for a while. No. We're building unity in the bond of peace so that our worship reflects the God of peace, the God who brings peace out of chaos. And the way that we do that is to pursue love. Gifts, important, understand them, be glad for them. Pursue love. And your life must be informed by the Apostle Paul's perspective on this still more excellent way. Hey, all things may be lawful, but all things are not helpful. Not all things build up, so you have to make some decisions with your heart with reference to those around you. Have faith, yes. Have hope, yes. But most of all, have love. Pursue love in the church. Love is the goal. Love is the goal. Desire and be thankful for the grace that God gives us along the way. But remember that the way is the way of love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. Thankful for the word of the apostles. Thank you for the way that you used them. The way that you attested to them in miraculous ways that established this church. Father, thank you for the teaching of your word that continues that the oracles of God go forward and they're understandable so that they can be believed and hoped in. Father, thank you for the many, many gifts of grace that you give to us. We are satisfied with the grace you give as we understand it from Scripture. We do not have to move or invent or desire different things. We love what you've given to us. We love that you have loved us in Christ. It's our desire to love you back and to be your witnesses to Christ's gospel love here in this place. Make it so, we pray. Give us grace for that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.